0: But let's not make the perfect the enemy of the essential. Let's show people all over the country who are looking for leadership in this difficult time that we are equal to
1: the task. As a whole, it's just a mess, and they need to be much shorter. It could be a much shorter mess, but then it could actually like stomach it.
0: I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
2: You're listening to the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast, an exploration of political ideas, political reality, and political possibilities. A show about the opportunities for change and improvement in the American political system and the obstacles to achieving them.
0: I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities when of tomorrow. world will continue to shape the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Citizens of America expect more they deserve and they
2: want more applied political philosophy welcome back to another episode i'm your host dr jack miller in this episode we turn our attention to a position that already gets a ton of attention the presidency the way the president is elected and the powers of the presidency are frequent targets for criticism and political reform proposals at this point in u.s history there have only been a small handful of successful reforms related to the presidency the Twelfth Amendment, ratified in 1804, which slightly modified the original Electoral College and succeeded in institutionalizing the presidential-vice presidential ticket. The Twentieth Amendment, ratified in, ratified in 1933, which moved the presidential inauguration from March to January, a pretty minor tweak to the system. The Twenty-Second Amendment, ratified in 1951, limiting the presidency to two terms of office, really the most significant limitation ever imposed on the presidency. And finally, the Twenty-Fifth Amendment, ratified in 1967 to clarify the succession to the presidency, a very late arriving fixed to a conspicuously absent process for replacing the president in cases of death or disability. There have, of course, been numerous statutes regulating the presidency, such as the Presidential Records Act, which has been in the news recently because of former President Trump's shenanigans with the National Archives, but nothing beyond the two-term limit has fundamentally altered either the presidential election process or the functioning of this crucial office. If anything, the presidency has grown informally in power over the decades, and the process for electing the president has become longer and longer. In this first segment, we turn our attention to this feature of the presidency, the length of the campaign season. The following interview was conducted in November 2019, roughly a year before the 2020 presidential election. Zane Emerson interviews his father, Jack Miller, that's me, about the length of the presidential campaign. Note that this segment originally appeared on the Pothole Problem Podcast. Good evening, Dad. Good to see you, Zane. Good to see you too. So presidential campaigns,
1: they take about a year and a half. And so some people might say they're too long, some people might say they're just fine. We'll get into that topic later, but for now, I'd like to focus on kind of the context. Is there any history of the length of the presidential campaigns? Was it like a conscious decision?
2: Is it just tradition, or has it just ended up to that they're this long? Well, you know, the primary system as we have it now dates to the early 70s. There have been you know nominating contests for presidents since the 19th century, but the way we do it now, where there's essentially primaries and caucuses, developed in the post-Watergate era but essentially for the last 40 or 50 years the structure of the system hasn't changed but what has changed is that candidates are declaring far earlier there are active campaigns happening for far longer the candidates who end up getting the nomination declare you know a year and a half sometimes even longer than that ahead of the general election bill clinton declared right about now in the election cycle so about a year from the general election, and he went on to get the nomination. The candidates running for the Democratic nomination right now have been running since uh, the earliest official entrance have been running since February. There have already been, I don't know how many debates, three, four debates. There were definitely definitely a debate in June, possibly July. So the amount of time that candidates are officially declared and engaging in debates and running for president has lengthened in the last 20 years by, you know, uh, almost a year. Is there a reason why candidates
1: are declaring themselves earlier? Is that like a strategic thing or they just want to get a head
2: start? Well, I think that, you know, it's one of those things where, in a way, it's a classic arms race. Uh, Somebody realizes okay it's beneficial to get in early so you can get started getting endorsements raising money building your campaign infrastructure and then when that happens other candidates see that that is beneficial so the next election cycle four years later people start a little earlier there are definitely advantages to building your campaign first or at least early in the process there's definitely a front runner advantage in nominating politics. Because unlike a general election, which occurs on the first Tuesday of November and everybody is running on the same day, the primaries happen over the course of several months themselves. So if you jump out to an early lead, that gives you an advantage in winning. It's not as though all the primaries and caucuses are created equal. The early ones have a bigger influence on the outcome than the later ones. So it just kind of developed naturally. It wasn't like the Founding Fathers wrote like, oh, a long presidential
1: campaign is necessary for a democratic society. It just kind of happened that way due to our system of
2: government voting. Well, the Founding Fathers didn't actually envision or even want there to be political parties. They didn't foresee the presidential, vice-presidential ticket. In fact, the original electoral college, as it was written in the constitution, the president was the person who won the most electoral votes. The vice-president was the person who came in second. So their design was that the runner-up in the presidential election would become the vice president. It wasn't until the 12th Amendment was passed after the election of 1800 that the electors cast separate votes for the president and vice president. And instead of having the vice president be the runner-up of the presidential election, the vice president was the winner of the vice presidential election. And so the party ticket was established pretty early on during the political activities of the founding generation, but they did not intend either for there to be a party system or a party ticket. So what we have right now wasn't envisioned or desired by the people who wrote the Constitution.
1: This podcast is about outrage, and as you can probably guess, some people are outraged or at least kind of annoyed. Why do you think people say they take too long? What are they feeling that makes them want to, that makes them so angry or so annoyed at
0: I would say that right now,
2: uh, the presidential campaign is too long. The night of election, when Donald Trump was elected, people started talking about 2020 and it was like, This just happened. Overall, just
0: find the length of the elections and the current state of them to be completely obnoxious and just awful to deal with.
1: It's too long because people tune out by the time November actually rolls around. I think that um, a more European approach would be better for America. I think if we started the primaries way later, that could really help. I have a bit of a different opinion on it because I like the length of the election, but I do not like currently how the length is being used. I think you can have a lengthy election if what you are doing is going around and talking to all the voters, because this is a very large country, president represents a lot of people, but right now it's very staggered between certain states that matter more than other states. It'd be nice if we just had, like, starts in, like, the summer of, like, 2020, and then we just do the primaries, like, boom, 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 and then it's done by November. Primaries are just a mess as a whole it's just a mess <laughs> and they need to be much shorter. It could be a much shorter mess, but then I could actually like stomach it.
2: I will be honest with you, part of the reason why I'm covering this is that I don't necessarily understand people's frustration and annoyance or outrage over the length of the presidential campaign. I know it's out there, I've seen it, but I don't necessarily understand why people feel so negatively about it.
1: That kind of leads to our next question. Before we get to that, though, I just have a question. Do you think that people who don't like the length of presidential election are the people
2: who don't vote or are the people indeed who do vote? No, I, I think that the people who have a problem with it actually do vote because they're the ones who are actually probably paying the most attention to it and are the most beaten down by it. I think that the people who don't vote are probably paying attention to it, or at least they can't avoid paying attention to it, but they don't vote either because they don't like the choice because there's only two major parties. And for many people who do vote, They often claim that it's a lesser of two evils kind of thing. So people who don't vote, they're not happy with either choice. Or, uh, it could be and or, they don't feel as though the government serves them much. And so it hardly matters who the president is. So why bother? Yes, but that's maybe a topic for another episode. Absolutely, right. Whether those voters who don't vote are right or not is definitely a different topic.
1: So let's move on. So speaking as a political scientist, what are some advantages to a long presidential campaign or what are some of the disadvantages?
2: I'll start with the disadvantages as they've been reported to me. Mostly people say that it leads to fatigue, that voters tune out, that there's essentially a presidential campaign, any campaign, but particularly a presidential campaign can be kind of nasty. And the prolonging of this nasty fight, it can seem like a knife fight, you know, a shorter knife fight is better than a longer knife fight. I think that There's just this idea that people tune out and it is annoying to have there be this thing going on. And part of it I feel like is is a certain sort of guilt where it's like, well, if a presidential election is happening, I should be paying attention, but it's just too long. I can't can't sustain my attention. To me, I think that if you don't wanna pay attention, you really don't have to. I'm one of those political science professors who doesn't believe that you have to be reading the political news constantly. If you read the political news or pay attention to the last one or two debates of a presidential season, if you if you tune in in mid-September, I believe you have all the tools and information necessary to make an informed decision. So there's no requirement that you do pay attention. Now, of course, if you're in a state where your primary or caucus is going to be an important one for the nomination contest, you can pay attention to that as well. And you should because voter turnout rates for primaries and caucuses are very low But again, you can pay attention for maybe two weeks before you have to go to the polls in the winter or spring of the election year. So there's no need to get worn out, except that there's this, I think, this kind of strange guilt where, well, there's debates, and I'm a politically aware person, and so I should pay attention to debates, but it's June of 2019, why do I have to pay attention to a debate when the election is a year and a half away? I'm a little mystified as to why people think it's problematic. There is one more thing that occurred to me. I do forget this, but I think that because the campaign takes longer, it therefore costs more money. And I know for sure from my 25 years of teaching political science that Americans in general and young people in particular have a huge problem with the role of money in our political system. The longer the campaign is, the more money has to be raised and therefore it just becomes more influential. Money becomes ever more influential. And so I I think that, that the money aspect has got to play a big role. I
0: stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America.
1: So now let's talk about the advantages. This is where I think you really know your stuff. What are what are some good things about a really long presidential campaign?
2: Right. Well, I think that there are a number of advantages to it that stem from the fact that this is a process that is going to choose a person who is going to not only have a tremendous amount of power and responsibility, but is going to spend four to eight years really nonstop doing the job and also four to eight years essentially cloistered away from the American people. When you are the president of the United States, you do see people, but you're not really able to be out connected among regular Americans. When you see regular Americans, they are brought through the White House. Sometimes you go out and do rallies, maybe you'll visit a lunch counter now and then to mix with regular people. But as president, for security reasons, and also just because it's an extremely busy job, you do not have a chance to mix with regular Americans. For the year and a half to two years that you're running for president, you're almost exclusively mixing with not just regular Americans, but a lot of them. And you're mixing with a ton of people that you're not going to come into contact with once you're president. And I think that kind of exposure to raw common humanity is really essential for a person whose decisions are going to affect a lot of people. And yet when they go to make those decisions as president, they're not going to be around the people who are going to be living the consequences of those decisions. So, In a way, to me, the length of the campaign is a prolonged exposure to raw common humanity that can really help somebody who's going to be in a position of extreme power and isolation. That's one big thing.
1: So before we go on, if someone brings up the concept of the French election, like French presidential elections, they don't take very long, and yet France seems to be going along
2: fine. Well, sure. I mean, that's the whole argument of like, well, we didn't wear bike helmets when I was a kid and we all survived. It's like, well, (laughs) except for the kids who didn't, you know, like, sure, it's working. But one, France is a smaller country and the president of France has less power and less importance and impact on the millions of people. It's easier to know the French people when you're sitting in wherever the French president lives and and works. I don't know the name of it. Honestly, I'm not very good with European politics. And I think the same thing is true of Great Britain. You know, you're the prime minister from 10 Downing Street. You're not nearly as isolated from the British people as the president is in the White House. And so, the comparison, I think, doesn't hold up. And also, we don't know how beneficial it would be to the French president to spend a year, a year and a half mixing with the French people. It could it could really be beneficial in a way that we aren't able to see.
1: Okay, so we have advantage number one is they get to mix with the people and really get to know them in a way they might not if they had a shorter campaign. What are some other
2: advantages you can think of? I mean, I think another one has to do with stamina. You're going to be president for 48 years. It's more or less a nonstop job. If you do not know what it's like to work a nonstop job, it can be very taxing. And what what I think we want in our president is somebody who is able to have that kind of stamina. And to me, a year and a half on the campaign trail, while that can wear you down a little bit as a uh, candidate, of course, it's very tiring at the end of it. You're like, oh my God, I've just been through this. It is much like training. So if we think of the presidential term as a marathon and possibly two terms as two consecutive marathons, The year and a half beforehand is training in that kind of really physical stamina and also the stamina of having to make decisions constantly, having to pay constant attention to the news cycle, being enmeshed in issue discussions and strategic discussions. It is mental fitness of having to kind of do that nonstop and being surrounded by advisors and basically never being alone and never being off the clock. So that's advantage number two.
1: Okay. So... If you have one more, maybe one more rule three, should we do three? If, if there's one more you want to do, one one big
2: one? One more advantage. One more advantage, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things, too, and this, I think, frustrates people, is that the length of the campaign gives candidates a chance to really feel themselves out on the issues and to adjust where they stand. Now, I, I, I can see this as a negative to a lot of people because they think, oh, they're just out there trying to figure out what people wanna hear and then telling it to them. And there is a certain extent to which that's true. But I also think there is a, okay, I'm out here on the campaign trail, and I'm talking to regular Americans about things they care about. And I have a position that I've developed over the course of my political career that I think is going to, be going to speak to the voters. And then it doesn't work. It doesn't resonate. So I'm going to adjust. So there's a sense in which it's actually a positive adjustment. You could see it as waffling, or you could see it as following public opinion rather than leading it. And of course, there is a certain amount of that that goes on. But there's course correction that is responsive to the public. So you're out there among the public getting exposure to raw common humanity, and you're also then essentially focus grouping your positions on the issues in a way that I think is very beneficial to, in the end, having policy positions that will resonate with a broad swath of voters that have been tried and adjusted over the course of many months. Instead of just saying, Here's my policies. Here's my positions that I've devised from my essentially high tower of wherever I am before I run. And do you like mine better than this other person's? Pick it. There's an evolution of political position that I think can happen. It doesn't always happen, but it can easily happen. And I think that that is a beneficial thing that that shows responsiveness. And what we want from our leaders of all levels is a responsiveness to the public. That's what a democracy is supposed to be for.
1: I think the listeners can figure this out, but what's your personal opinion? <laughs> like, do you think it's too long? Do you think it's just fine? Or well, do you have some
2: other third opinion? I will, I will tell you this, that my personal opinion is that it is not too long. And I will also confess that I am of the ilk that doesn't pay attention very closely to it until it gets closer to the election. I'm, I'm a political scientist who studies American politics, and I have watched zero of the Democratic debates up to this point. Now, I've read about them, but my attention level to this contest is not at its height, and I don't feel like it makes me a bad political scientist. I don't think it makes me a bad citizen. I know I'll begin paying attention to it as the first primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire arrive, which is even earlier than I would have to as a voter in Oregon. I'm for it for all the reasons I've stated. At the same time, I'm not deeply engaged in the process. I think you can do that and not feel guilty, and I think you can do that and not feel as though You have to be mad at the process that you're not actually paying attention to. Because the people who want to pay attention to it, they are. And as they say in the South, bless their hearts. I'm not going to tell them not to. If you don't pay attention to it, then it's going to go on without you. And you will have your say when the primary or caucus comes to your state. And that's when you should pay attention and decide who you're going to uh, cast your vote for. And by then the candidates will have made various mistakes and gaffes and the news cycle will have cycled through them several dozen hundred times and you will have missed probably nothing of true importance to making your decision as an informed citizen
1: you say that it's good that that the presidential elections are long because they can mingle with the people they can get a stamina but you're also saying you don't really pay attention to them so how can like the first point your first point is about the mingling with the people but you're not really focusing on the mingling?
2: i don't have to and no specific american citizen has to actually be paying attention to this for them to have to be doing what they're doing for one thing they're going to the iowa state fair in you know the fall of 2019 and they're going to these various places there are 330 plus million americans there are plenty of people to interact with who either are paying attention or who are in the grocery store when you know joe biden walks through the amp in ames iowa those people are raw common humanity for joe biden to kind of connect with so There are so many people that campaigns can go on for this length of time. They're not going to run out of folks to interact with. And so I don't think it's hypocritical of me to think that the campaign length is a good thing and yet myself not participate in it because there are plenty of people who do. They don't need me reading the news or watching the debate for it to be useful for them, for it to be good practice, for it to test their stamina, for it to help them connect with regular people for them to adjust their policy positions to reflect what they see out there on the campaign trail. Of course, even if you disagree with me about the benefits of a lengthy presidential campaign, there's nothing you can realistically do about it. With the First Amendment's protections for political speech, you can't legislate the length of the presidential campaign. If candidates want to get out there and start talking about their campaign, advertising for themselves, etc., we can't stop them. The First Amendment forbids it. Countries that have limits on the length of campaigns don't have this impediment. Now, maybe you think those countries have it right, and we should clear away the First Amendment's restrictions on regulating our political system. However, there are numerous proposals to reform the presidential election process that don't require altering or abolishing the First Amendment. There is, of course, the familiar call to get rid of the Electoral College, and there are calls for the parties to adopt a new and better way of nominating their presidential candidates. In this next segment, we hear about an innovative proposal to change the way the Oregon presidential primary is conducted, a political reform that could be brought about through simple state legislative action or a ballot initiative. The next piece is excerpted from a lecture I delivered in April 2020. It's worth noting that this was recorded before the Democratic Party changed its early primary calendar to bump Iowa and New Hampshire from their first primary and caucus position, opting to move more representative states that are more influential in the general election, South Carolina, Georgia, and Michigan, to the top of the calendar. This reform definitely addresses one of the major problems that people have with the primary system, which is that highly unrepresentative states get to vote first and confer frontrunner status on candidates who aren't necessarily the strongest ones going into the general election and that appeal to the kinds of voters who aren't found throughout the party's electorate. This certainly counts is an important reform to the presidential nominating process. The reform discussed in this lecture is significantly more radical and would be transformative in various ways, as you'll hear. Today, I'm going to be talking about reinventing the Oregon presidential primary. Why do I have a critique of the primary? It's not a rational system. And so my thought as a political reformer, I'm a political reformer who doesn't like the primary system. And I know that I can't necessarily dismantle it from the top down. Remaking the entire primary process seems problematic to me in terms of actually getting across the finish line because I would have to just, I'll just say that I'm just, I know that I can't do it that way. So, what I, what I want to do is, I want to take uh, some, I want to bite off something I can chew. And that's the Oregon presidential primary. And I hope that there's an opportunity to do it by initiative. And if it turns out that after doing the sort of initial legal analysis, we have to work through the statutory means in the Oregon legislature, that's a harder thing. But still, also, it is just it is just convincing 31 members of the House and 16 members of the Senate and the governor to enact this law. Why do I want what I want? Well, what I want is a couple of things. One. I want the Oregon primary to be more important in the primary process, partly out of state pride right, and partly out of the fact that as Oregonians, we know that with our May primary, we almost never are going to have uh, an impact on the final outcome. So I'm I'm moving us closer to the front. So the first stipulation is that it's held during the first Saturday, Sunday and Monday of February. So I'm moving us ahead in the calendar. The real reason why I want to move ahead in the calendar, and I have have a sort of a holistic perspective on this political reform. I'm not just looking to change Oregon. I'm looking to change the entire nominating process to be one that, to me, is more sensible and rational. And what I want is I want this new system to happen early enough in the 2024 election that it really helps confer frontrunner status... And so that the style of campaigning that's required to do well under my new process becomes the new early way that candidates have to approach campaigning for the presidential nomination, that they actually orient their campaigns towards doing well in this environment. And my hope is, one, that campaigns will will adapt quickly in 2024 to do that, but two, that other states... Seeing the kind of process that Oregon develops and seeing the positive outcome that it generates. I'm hoping for and really believing in a positive outcome that other states will follow our lead as many states did when Oregon enacted uh, direct democracy with the initiative referendum and recall. The Oregon system, we were the first ones to do it. So I'm hoping to, again, a century later, be pioneers of political reform and that we're early enough in the calendar and it's a different enough and beneficial and positive style of of, uh, campaigning. And it seems to party leaders to produce stronger general election candidates or at least it produces front-runners who are stronger and better versions of uh, eventual uh, general election candidates, that there will be a cascading set of reforms that follow this initial reform. So My overall strategy is to, one, work at the state level instead of the national level, even though I have a problem with the national primary system, to work at the state level and to work in a way that is one of the easier avenues of political reform. Now, I'm also asking for a pretty radical change, and the very first section called selection is the radical change. And this is the most radical thing. And so I I will admit already that I'm really shooting for the stars here. While I'm looking for one state instead of the whole system, I am actually not just trying to incrementally change our primary. I'm changing in a fundamental way because the selection mechanism is gonna be through sortition. And sortition is drawing lots, random selection. The idea of random selection is that the people who are making the decision are chosen at random And so there's not some kind of exogenous factor that is giving the people who are ultimately making the decision some form of orientation or another. We randomly select 500 Oregon Democrats, if it's the Democratic Party, Oregon Republicans, if it's the Republican Party, if the Green Party is going to have a a, a convention, or the Libertarian Party, 500 people registered uh, from them. So random selection, in this case, not of, of all Oregonians. But of people who come, who are registered in one or other of the parties. Now, if you're not registered as a Democrat or a Republican, if you're in it not aligned, then you will never get picked in this system. So, my version of sortition is not 500 registered voters in Oregon for each convention, but random selection from within the parties. So it's not stupendously radical in the sense that I'm taking out of the hands of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who gets our delegates, right? Uh, Because what's ultimately gonna be voted on here, because in the new system, the people that go to the National Convention, I didn't finish that part of the story, but you probably know this already, the delegates who get sent to the Summer Convention are pledged delegates. They are pledged to a particular presidential candidate. So what our 500 people are gonna do? They are going to then choose who the pledge delegates go to. And then the rest of the Democratic Party system happens the way it normally happens. You have primaries and caucuses, those states choose who their delegates, pledge delegates are gonna be, they go to the convention in the summer. We're doing what every other state is doing. We're just doing it with a group of people that is randomly selected and smaller. And then what we're going to have is these 500 people choose these pledge delegates at a convention, a three-day convention. And so what I'm actually doing here is I'm doing a kind of old style mixture with a radical proposal. The old style is that way back, the way that the people who got to go to the summer convention got chosen was in a local convention. And that convention was sometimes just a meeting of people. It was a caucus meeting. It could have been held at a bar. It could have been held in an office. It could have been held uh, in, in, in private homes. But it was party insiders picking which of the party insiders were going. Here... It's not party insiders picking which party insiders go, it's randomly selected members of the Democratic and Republican electorate, registered electorate, choosing which people go, and choosing who they're pledged to. It's the sortition thing that's the most radical. The essentially small convention that chooses who goes to the bigger convention is the old style, and the pledged delegates is the new style. So I'm I'm mixing the old and the new, and I'm also adding a radical new element, but a radical new element that is a democratic mechanism, sortition, that has been used effectively in various contexts, and I'm saying I think it would be very effective here. Now, why would it be very effective? One of the things about random selecting Is that the benefit of it is that it gives you people who don't who aren't picked who have a necessarily pre-existing set of political views or predilections it gives you a random selection of them now what you're gonna get in these 500 people is you're gonna get some closed-minded people you're gonna get some people who arrive with a candidate who there's their preferred candidate and they're gonna be unmovable but you're also gonna get people who arrive with no preferred candidate and you're gonna get people who arrive with a preferred candidate but who have an open mind. So we're gonna get a mixture of all of those different types. That doesn't happen in a standard caucus or primary. right? In a standard caucus or primary, what you get is people going in a primary where you just go into a voting booth or you mail in your, your, your ballot or you touch a screen Knowing who you're going to vote for. right? You, your mind is made up already. You've been campaigned at and your mind is made up. In a caucus, you tend to go, some people go not knowing and they have an open mind, uh, but they get convinced in that moment or they convince other people in that moment. So even in the caucus, which is way more participatory, there's not a whole lot of openness. What I think is really beneficial about Sortition is that it produces an environment in which people who are going to be the deciders, these 500 people are the deciders, it produces the greater likelihood of diverse opinions and open-mindedness. And it also gets some people who represent all kinds of voters. Who goes to a primary election? Engaged party voters, loyalists. Who goes to a caucus? super engaged party loyalists, right? So our standard mechanisms, the primary and the caucus, both select for a particular group of the party. One of the reasons why the traditional nominating process as it's existed since 1972 doesn't produce the most electable best strongest general election candidates is because the people voting in those elections are themselves unrepresentative of their party. Even if we ignore the whole front-runner status of New Hampshire and Iowa, even if we had a one-day primary where everybody in all the states voted at the same time, the people who would go and vote, they would be the highest-intensity voters. The voter turnout rate for primaries is well below 50%. Traditionally, they are uh, less than half of the party's voters, and they are the most intense. So, of course, they're the ones who have different ideas about who the best candidate is. If you're a hardcore uh, progressive, you're gonna come out for Bernie. If a particular state has uh, maybe a bunch of hardcore progressives, but even more kind of moderate Democrats, and the moderate Democrats don't, aren't as engaged, so they don't go to the caucus or don't go to the primary, the hardcore Bernie people are gonna choose Bernie, who's, who, uh, I'm, I won't say he's not, the, not an electable candidate, but is probably not the strongest candidate to unite all of the different people in the Democratic Party. This system gets us all kinds of different people who might not themselves ever even vote in a primary. It's going to get some people who are hardcore supporters of different candidates who would definitely vote, who are very loyal. It's going to get us all the things. Random selection creates a cross-section of people. And the reason why sortition is, for me, the right reform is that what we're trying to do ultimately is pick the strongest general election candidate. And the strongest general election candidate is somebody who can appeal to the broadest range of potential voters. And so we're creating, in this case, a a, a sample of that. We're actually generating, not uh, through voluntary behavior, which is what a primary caucus is, but through random forced behavior. And that's actually one of the important things, is obligation. Electors shall be legally bound to attend unless excused by the Secretary of State upon presenting just cause for excusal. But basically, there might be people who never have voted ever in their lives. They're a registered Democrat. Probably they would have voted, but they, they registered as a Democrat you know, when they were 16 in high school and you, got, you automatically registered. They get picked randomly and they are forced to go and be one of these uh, electors. And you might just be like, well, but that's terrible. Voluntarism is one of the most important, uh, and liberty are one of the most important uh, pieces of our political culture. You can't force people to participate in the political system. Yeah, you can, and I'm proposing that you, that you do. There is only one other model of forcing people. Americans to do things for the government besides pay taxes and obey the law and that is jury duty and that I mentioned actually that the people can be excused from this obligation for the same reason they can be excused from jury duty. There is already a model for forcing reluctant people to doing something that's their civic duty. This is a different unfamiliar civic duty selecting the state's pledged delegates for the presidential nomination but it has the same structure as a jury. Now the idea of this, the entire background idea of this whole thing, sortition is the means to an end. The three-day convention is meant to be a model of deliberative democracy. And I will definitely confess that the driving force behind this reform is the desire to have more deliberative processes in our democratic system. That's my bias, but that's also part of my selling point, is that deliberation is a really great thing in a democracy. We don't have enough of it. In fact, we have too much argumentation and fighting and not enough deliberation. And I'm trying to sneak deliberation into our political system in one small corner, not even into our political system, into our party nominating process, hoping that deliberation will look good and that it will then gain legitimacy and gain momentum. So there are two kind of big picture goals in my political reform movement, which is one, to have Oregon pioneer this brand new type of presidential primary that hopefully other states will adopt and that that will transform the presidential primary, and even bigger picture that Americans will see an example of deliberative democracy in action and they'll go, that looks good. That's totally unfamiliar. Sortition and a three-day convention, that's crazy, but then they'll see it because this will be very high profile. If this actually happens, the Oregon three-day convention is going to get national attention. It's gonna be a huge part of the story. It's going to be, it is going to be a political reform that gets a stupendous amount of attention. And so, if it goes well, Americans will have a high-profile example of two different democratic systems or processes that we're totally unfamiliar with, sortition and deliberation. Now, why is it going to be deliberative? It's going to be enforcedly deliberative, and the, the jury model is, again, juries are deliberative bodies. Juries come in without prior knowledge and without any kind of legal experience and they're exposed only to the facts and then they deliberate and have to come up with a consensus uh, verdict. The delegates here are not going to be voting, they don't have to get to unanimity but the process that has been generated is going to enforce, because it's a three-day convention, it's going to essentially, I won't say enforce, it's going to create the opportunity for deliberation and these 500 people are there for three days And so those 72 hours, minus sleep and eating, they have nothing to do but deliberate. And the candidates are going to be allowed to have access to them in a completely different way. So it's deliberative democracy, and what it is is we have direct candidate engagement. And so again, what I'm looking for here and creating a specific structure and process to generate this is that presidential candidates come to the convention, and they and their people speak directly to, in a controlled forum, speak directly to these delegates. That's not how presidential candidates talk to primary and caucus voters, right? They talk to them at rallies, they talk to them through television and radio ads, they talk to them through social media, they talk to them through their surrogates going on television, they talk to them through their activists going and knocking door to door. They talk to them in a lot of of ways. They almost never talk to them in a forum an argumentative forum with people who are essentially there, their job is there to be open minded. And they're modeled after the jury where you can't campaign them in advance. They come in with whatever preconceived notions they have and whatever political predilections, but they don't come in having already been campaigned at by the candidates. So they're as close to jury members as possible. And then the candidates have an enforced opportunity to to speak to them in a way that I think we would love politicians to have to speak to voters, which is rationally and in a competitive environment, but not an argumentative environment. So the whole process that's laid out for the open candidate forum and the way the staff members are able to answer questions and engage in discussions with these 500 delegates is intended to produce not just a deliberative atmosphere among the 500, but a discursive and deliberative relationship between the candidates and the candidates' uh, campaign team. It's not just the candidates, they get to bring, I think it's up to 25 staff members, to engage. So, direct candidate engagement, deliberative democracy, and what we get here is we get a discussion, rather than the usual, essentially, battle and argument that a normal campaign happens to be. What I'm saying about this method, it's kind of radical because the idea of randomly selecting the people who are going to select the delegates who are going to pick the presidential nominee it s- seems very unusual, but the randomness is a really important factor. This is going to be a more reliable representation of the voters of Oregon. Now, I really, if I wanted to really remake the entire Democratic and Republican Party nominating process, I wouldn't do Oregon. I would pick a different state like Virginia or Ohio or Florida, and I would bring that to the top of the calendar, and I would bring this process into it. I'm picking not necessarily the best version of what should be the early voting state, but a better version than Iowa and New Hampshire. But mostly what I'm demonstrating Hoping to demonstrate, I should say, with the success of this particular reform, is that we can have a different style of politics. We can have a deliberative style, which is going to mean that people, voters, in this case the 500 electors, are going to engage with each other intellectually and on the issues and on candidate electability and on character and on whatever it is that they want to talk about. But we're going to see democracy not as voters essentially being the recipients of messages and arguments from candidates and then voters going out and doing whatever they want. We're going to see an open process of deliberation and discussion. That is more democratic, in my view, than voters taking whatever that has been said to them and however they've been manipulated or appealed to or spoken to or successfully argued in a particular direction and secretly voting their thing. That's democratic too. I'm not saying that the secret ballot's not democratic. This is also democratic. It's just unfamiliar to us and I want it to get a good show be part of the national uh, storyline the national discourse so that the benefits of sortition the benefits of deliberation the benefits of this kind of candidate engagement can actually be seen in a high-profile way and have a chance to then change people's minds but I will acknowledge that the sense that this is just too different and too weird is going to work against this particular movement, so I'm anticipating that the tallest hill to climb here is sortition. The idea of a three-day nominating convention that's televised and that engages the candidates and the selectors in this particular way, I think that's less, it's still unfamiliar, but I think it's less radical. Caucuses seem very democratic. There are people getting together in a room and arguing and discussing and then choosing their delegates, but caucuses are stupendously undemocratic because there are a lot of people who don't have the time, energy, or desire to go to a caucus, and so participation is extremely low. Here, participation is enforced, so you don't have a choice. And while that, I think, does really kind of, that is going to rub wrong with the American political culture, we have an example, jury. Like, your jury, jury duty is a civic responsibility. Choosing the nominee for president could be seen as it as a civic responsibility. It isn't seen that way, but there's no reason why it's any crazier to think that this is a civic responsibility than that you have to go to a courthouse and be on a jury is a civic responsibility. I mean, granted, our system of justice would fall apart if we didn't have juries, and so juries are probably need to be staffed by people who are forced to do it. Our presidential primary system won't fall apart without enforced sortition participation, but it's not a great system as it exists we need a different way and this is my proposal for it one of the things i will note is that after all this my next step is to build a coalition behind this and what i might have to do as i build that coalition is given on some of these ideas because if i really want this to win i need it to get on the ballot I need to have enough money to launch a successful campaign. I need to get the signatures to get on the ballot in the first place. I need money to pay the lawyers to figure all this stuff out. I need resources and support. And a coalition that's as broad as possible is going to be the greatest way to success. If important coalition partners, people that I'm just like, well, I really don't want to and can't do without you, don't like certain of these aspects. As a political reformer, I'm going to have to decide when and where I'm going to give in and when and where I'm going to draw the line i can't answer how i would do that right now i know that sortition to me is a super important component of this whole thing but it's not a deal breaker necessarily i would love to not have to give it away to build a broader coalition but really any of these things moving into the front of the calendar i would love not to have to give that up because i think that it will we can help confer front runner status We're going to get a lot more national attention if that seems a little too radical to people who might want to join the coalition then i'm probably going to uh, probably want to give on this uh, as well political reform is not necessarily a happy pretty thing in terms of like okay i want to win and i want to remain as pure to my vision as possible but if i have to kind of dilute my view or vision or transform it a little bit in order to be able to get some kind of a win I have to be willing to do that, or at least I have to be willing to pay the price if I'm going to be intransigent on my ideas. What I really do have to do, and this is going to be a hard thing in building a coalition, and it's going to be an even harder thing in trying to get voter support for this, is I have to fight the naturalism that this isn't democratic. sortition's not democratic, and you can't do a primary this way. It's never been done this way. It's crazy. This is going to seem crazy. And I have to find a way to at least say it's not crazy, and it's also not so radical, and it's worth a try. And really, it's just one state. Another reason why I'm taking a state-level approach instead of a national approach is that I'm playing into the laboratories of democracy idea. Innovative ideas get tested in a smaller container so they don't wreck the entire national system. If this turns out to be a disaster, it doesn't wreck the nominating process that's already in place. I'm not going to wreck the entire way that presidential candidates are chosen with this particular thing. So it's the opportunity that's available to me, it's a lower bar, it's an easier avenue, uh, but also it contains any potential unforeseen consequences, because I really don't know what that three-day convention would look like. I have uh, a certain level of faith that it would actually be a really visible, beautiful example of deliberative democracy in action, and that the candidates, because they're constrained in how they interact with, with the uh, delegates there, are going to uh, engage in a kind of politics that we're going to find very refreshing. But I really don't know. It could. It really could end up being... A total disaster and if it is it'll be relatively easy to repeal and go back to the primary system the way that we had it before and it will only be one state out of 50 plus nominating contests and so it won't wreck the entire system. the applied political philosophy podcast is brought to you by the students and professor in ps419 political reform a political science class at portland state university in portland oregon all content is the opinion of the individual creators and not of the professor the university or the political science department The President of the United States obviously wields a tremendous amount of power, and that power might not always be what we, the people, want it to be. Often there are calls to reduce or limit the powers of the presidency, but it's rare to hear proposals to expand presidential powers. In this next segment, we're going to hear an argument for a new process and a new presidential power, the presidential referendum. Voters elect presidents for a variety of reasons, but one of the most important is support for the candidate's policy agenda. Presidential campaigns work hard to convince voters to support their position on taxes, immigration, healthcare, the environment, the social safety net, and a variety of other issues. Issues are important to voters, as they should be in a democracy, yet the president, once elected, has little opportunity to keep most of those promises. That's because much of a president's agenda is legislative in nature, so keeping campaign promises means working with and through Congress. Few presidents have the political experience needed to work effectively through Congress, even with a supportive majority in both houses. And if they don't have a supportive majority in both houses, forget about getting almost anything significant done. However, voters want and expect action on the president's agenda regardless of the constitutional and political hurdles, and they express dissatisfaction and distrust in government when they don't see forward movement on the things they voted for a president to do. That's where the presidential referendum comes in. The referendum is a familiar and widely supported method of direct democracy enabling state legislatures to place bills before the voters, thus giving citizens direct control over policy outcomes. A presidential referendum would give presidents that same opportunity, benefiting our democracy and empowering the American people. The referendum would work this way. Within the first four months of each presidential term, the president can introduce up to three bills into Congress with an official referendum tag. A bill with the referendum tag cannot be amended or altered the way a normal bill would. It is submitted for an up-and-down vote by each House of Congress. If passed by majorities in both, the president may sign it into law, and that's the end of the story. Promise kept. Any referendum-tagged bills not passed within the calendar year are available to the president to place on the ballot the following midterm general election. The national referendum would be carried out through normal state elections using a modified electoral college process, with each state having a number of electoral votes equal to its number of seats in the House of Representatives. States could choose to either hold winner-take-all or some form of proportional vote for their allotted electoral votes. Any bill receiving 218 or more electoral votes becomes a law with the president's signature, the same as a normal bill passed by both houses of Congress. This new process would benefit American democracy in several important ways. First, it would enable presidents to bring their policy proposals directly to the American people for an up or down vote if Congress doesn't take action. That would make the election of a president more meaningful and more impactful. Second, it would give the people themselves a more direct role in policymaking. We the people are sorely lacking in the ability to show our preferences for certain policies, at least at the national level. Right now, the only way is through public opinion surveys that are easily ignored by federal officials. The presidential referendum would give the people a useful and beneficial form of power to decide policies that they themselves must live with. What could be more democratic? Critics of this proposal are likely to say that this messes with the separation of powers by giving the president some share of the legislature's power, and it upsets the system of checks and balances that has been upholding the stability of our system of government for over two centuries. I take these criticisms seriously, but I believe they are misguided. For one thing, the president does not receive any legislative power under this proposal. He or she does gain a new power, that's true, but that power is merely to bypass Congress and repose legislative power directly in the hands of the people, who are, in any democracy, the ultimate source of any power exercised by the legislature. With the presidential referendum, the president is merely a pass-through for giving the people a direct voice in the law of the land. It is true that this reform would transform our system of checks and balances, but it would enrich that system, and it would enhance the ultimate check in any democratic system, the voice and power of the people. The presidential referendum would give the people a direct check on the power of Congress, more specifically on the inaction of Congress. Currently, the people's check on Congress is fairly weak. Voters in each state have a say over only three members of Congress, their two senators and their single representative in the House. While that is more than no power at all, it is a highly diluted form and generally has little or no impact on what Congress does or does not pass. By allowing the people to have a direct voice over legislation, the people become a legitimate and powerful check on the political system as intended. That's why so many states have forms of direct democracy, to ensure that the people can act as a powerful check on their elected officials. Further, this new power in the hands of the people does nothing to lessen the existing power of Congress to enact legislation. So this new check by the people on Congress would itself have a countercheck on it, a countercheck that already exists. It's already true that any federal law can be altered or repealed by a new act of Congress, so Congress would be able to overturn a yes vote on a referendum-tagged bill the same way it can repeal any previous act of any Congress. While it would likely need a veto-proof majority to do so in the short term, the president is unlikely to sign into law a repeal of a law he or she supported through the referendum. A new president could sign into law a repeal of the previous president's referendum victory if that's what either Congress or the people themselves want. So the presidential referendum doesn't overturn or undermine our system of checks and balances. It merely adds more layers to that system. It provides a valuable opportunity for presidents to keep their promises and a much needed chance for voters to weigh in directly on whether or not they want specific promises kept. It would also give voters a chance to make a more nuanced decision about presidential priorities. All presidents claim a mandate for their agenda upon winning office. However, it's unclear if the American people do or don't support specific parts of that agenda. And there's currently no way beyond public opinion surveys to find out. By taking a specific promise directly to the people, presidents can test the proposition that they have a mandate for certain policies, and voters can send a more detailed signal to the government about what they do and don't want than the blunt binary choice of one candidate over another currently affords them. Unfortunately, this change would need to be enacted through the most challenging avenue of reform, the constitutional amendment, where two-thirds of both houses of Congress and then three-fourths of the states would need to agree to make the presidential referendum part of our political system. Because this new method of enacting laws would put a new check on the power of legislators, it is unlikely that those very legislators would approve. That unlikelihood, however, doesn't make this a bad proposal, simply one that challenges the political status quo. The transfer of some small portion of lawmaking power to the people via their elected president would be as beneficial to our democracy as it is unlikely to occur under the present system. Thank you for listening to our consideration of presidential matters. There are certainly a lot of other issues to explore when it comes to reforming the presidency, replacing or transforming the Electoral College, placing constraints on the president's foreign policy powers, changing the impeachment process to make it possible to actually remove the president from office, and more. We at the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast encourage you to email us with suggestions for future stories and to share your ideas about political reform. You can contact me at jack.miller at pdx.edu with any feedback or input you have. Thank you again and always for listening to our show.